Welcome to another inspirational teaching by Pastor Mike Foreman, Senior Pastor of the First Baptist Church of Level Plains. For more information about Pastor Mike and the church, please visit our website at www.fbclp.life. Let's join Pastor Mike now as he shares from God's Word. Well, we've been looking at Acts in our series talking about Jesus building His church. And it's important that we understand, and I want you to understand that I've been reminding you that we're doing this series not just to go through a book of the Bible. That's I can do that any week I want to, and uh, you know that's just a lot of work on me to pick a book of the Bible and just preach through. But let me just be honest with you. We're going through it because, one, I believe it was God ordained for us to do that. God I believe it led me to that text because here's in my heart what God is doing is we, we really have to evaluate us as a church. You constantly do that, by the way. I mean, it's just like a company. A company is always evaluating where are they. You know, are, are, is the profit margin where it needs to be? You know, are we keeping the investors, you know, happy? They're always, you know, innovating to do better. And the church should be no different. We're living, you know, in 2018. And how do we reach people in 2018? Well, it's different than reach pe- reaching people even in 1990. Because even in 1990, there was this sense by which people had respect and awe for the church. And there was still this idea that if I want to be connected community-wise, I'd go to church. That's not so anymore. And so what's happened is a lot of people left church because of what we're calling the nuns. That is, the, the folks who weren't really believers. They were really connected to the church because that was just a hip thing to do, to be part of a church. And so they left because it's no longer hip to be part of a church. So a lot of them have walked out the door. So they weren't really believers to begin with. So it's not that the church has declined any. The church hasn't really declined. We just lost people who really weren't believers. But what's happening is people aren't coming, and they're not coming because we have not developed a culture of inviting, and we've not developed a culture of outreach, and so we need to develop that culture. And that culture of outreach is different today than it was in 1990 as well. 1990, you can still knock on somebody's door without getting shot. Today, it's very dangerous even to go knock on doors. So you've got to be careful. Now, some churches are doing that. Some churches are being successful in doing that. I'm saying we have to throw the baby out with the bathwater. But there's some context in which you can do that and some which you can't. But the main primary outreach is for us to, to live like Jesus in the world in which we're in and to be more like him. And so, therefore, we want to look at the book of Acts and find out, okay, what did the early church do? Because let's just be honest. I can read church growth books, and I've done a lot of that. I can go to seminars, and I've done some of those. And I can learn how church growth is supposed to be. But the reality is you can't beat God's plan. Amen? Because God's plan is always the best. How God did it through a church is how he still does it through the church. Okay? So whether you're contemporary, whether you're traditional, I don't think it has so much to do with it as what is God doing? And what are the members of the church? Are they living, are they living in yieldedness to the Holy Spirit's work and power in their life so that the church can be what she needs to be? So... We've been looking at the church in the early church, and we found out, first of all, the promise of Jesus is he's going to build the church. Amen? And we saw that he's doing that, and Jesus is building his church in the book of Acts. He's doing that by, first of all, empowering them with the Holy Spirit, and then he gives them a job, right? He sends them out. He gives them a commission to go into all the world, not just to stay at home in Jerusalem, but to branch out and eventually be in all the world. That's what we're called to do as a church. We're not called to make a profit. Uh, we're not called to just stay inside the four walls and be a monastery. We're called to be missional. We're called to get outside the walls of this church. In my life and your life, whatever we may do in life becomes my mission to win people to Jesus. So how can I leverage being a, 
a secretary at work for the gospel? How can I leverage being a trash man for the gospel? How can I leverage being a doctor for the gospel? How can I leverage whatever I do for the gospel? How can I do that? I think the book of Acts shows us how to do that very well. Paul, after all, was a tent maker by also trade. So he uh, made room for the gospel and used that for the gospel's sake. So Jesus is building a church. No doubt about it. He's building his church. And by the way, he's doing it still today. And I want to be a part of that plan. And I want to see God do that right here in Level Plains. Because I believe he can do it. I don't know about you. I believe he can do it. Amen? And if we have faith and belief and trust and begin to put into practice the principles we've been learning over the past few weeks, I have no doubt he can do it here in Level Plains as well. And uh, we may sometimes feel small and insignificant, but... Let me tell you something. In God's hands, we're mighty. We're more than conquerors, the Bible says. And so we ought to take advantage of that. So here, the church is growing. And up to this point, let's just be honest. Up to this point in the book of Acts, the, the church really hasn't faced a whole lot of opposition, has it? I mean, see how this opposition from the outside. We looked at it last week, how Jesus emboldens his church. But from the inside, everything's pretty smooth. From the inside... What we keep reading is that they were of one heart. They're of one mind. That they're, they're unified together. But then something happens. It, it happens in every church. Our church, every church. And that is sin. Sin creeps in. The devil finds a place to put his foot in the door and he slides through the crack. And that's exactly what happens to this church. Now think about the early church. The early church is growing by leaps and bounds. By all accounts, we know there's 9,000 men. Could be upwards to 20,000, 30,000 people in this church. And so you got all these people who came. Remember, remember the beginning? They came for the Passover. They came for a feast. And they're from many lands. And they get saved and they hang out together. They stay together. And so now you have... This community of believers living together in community, which we do hopefully through our small groups. That's what we ought to be doing. And so we live in community together. And in living in community together, needs begin to arise. And as these needs begin to arise, the church meets the needs of each other. Amen? And, and so we have in chapter 5 what I'm calling in my sermon Jesus purifying his church because sin creeps into the body through what should have been a good thing, ended up being a sinful thing. And, and when sin comes in, Jesus deals with that very seriously. Why? Because sin, remember, sin divides. Sin always divides. Sin is what kills, right? We, we said in the Bible, that we, we, we quote those verses to our children, Romans 6.23, for the wages of sin is death, but... The gift of God is eternal. The wages of sin is what? Death. What is death? Separation. So when you and I sin, it can cause separation. Let gossip. You start gossiping. I'll never forget I had this lady come knocking on my door. She was was so mad. Oh, I mean, it was like before I got dressed in the morning, she was pounding my door early. And uh, when I got to the door, I'm like, Verbi, what do you need? And she's like, I I just want to tell you. You know that you told Teresa that I was gossiping about her the other day and she called me and she gave me what down the road. Blah, blah, blah. And I said, well, first of all, you got your facts wrong. 
I said, Robert, I didn't tell Teresa anything about you gossiping the other day. Now, I heard you gossiping the other day, but I didn't, I didn't tell her anything. I said, did you ask her where it came from? She said, she wouldn't tell me. I said, well, you know, have you ever thought about this, Furby? If you didn't run your mouth and gossip, you wouldn't be in this situation. You know what happened? Sin divided. Sin divided. She was mad at me. Teresa was mad at her. You, you get it? Sin divides. When we begin to gossip and we begin to backbite each other and we begin to mistreat one another, guess what happens? I don't want to hang out with you and you don't want to hang out with me. It divides. So Jesus is going to deal with it. Not only does sin divide, but listen, sin spreads. A church that doesn't deal with sin, people don't deal with sin in their life, it's like cancer. It eats. And it keeps growing and it keeps growing and it keeps growing. I've heard of churches that have split because of sin running rampant in their church. It's ridiculous. We'll talk more about that at the end of the sermon today. But can I just tell you what sin also does? It hurts our witness in the community. How can we be Christ's followers and be like Jesus and allow sin to run rampant in our lives? Paul says in Romans 6, it shouldn't be. Matter of fact, twice in Romans 6, he said, may it never happen. And yet, let's be honest, it happens in the church. And so Jesus has got to purify his church, especially if the church won't purify herself. Sometimes Jesus will step in and purify a church. So what does he do in Acts chapter 5? He purifies the church. And so I want to talk about Acts chapter 5 today. It's not a pleasant sermon by any stretch of the imagination for me or for you. But listen to what he says in Acts 5. We'll just read the text. It'll be on the screen if you want to follow along. But a certain man named Ananias and Sapphira, his wife, sold a possession. We find out later it's some land. And he kept back part of the proceeds. And his wife also being aware of it. And they brought a certain part and laid it at the apostles' feet. Peter being a Holy Ghost-filled prophet says, Ananias... Why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and keep part of the price of the land for yourself? While it remained, was it not your own? And after it was sold, was it not your own control? Why have you conceived this thing in your heart? He said, you have not lied to men, but to God. Then Ananias, hearing these words, fell down and breathed his last. He died, folks. He dead. Fell down and breathed his last. So great fear came about all those who heard these things. And the young men arose and they wrapped him up and they carried him out and they buried him. Now it was about three hours later when his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. And Peter, Peter answered her, tell me whether you, you sold this land for such and such. And she said, yes, for so much. Then Peter said to her, how is it that you have agreed together to test the spirit of the Lord? Look, the feet of those who have carried your husband at the door, uh, or, or at the door, excuse me, and they will carry you out. Then immediately she fell down at his feet and breathed her last. The young men came and they found her dead body and they carried her out and they buried her with her husband. So great fear came upon all the church and upon all who heard these things. The unfortunate thing about our English text is that Somebody in their wisdom decided to put in paragraph divisions and verse numbers. And really, the ending of chapter 4, verse 32, 
and following chapter 4 should really be attached to chapter 5. Because let me just give you the context of what's going on. So the church, remember the church is gathered, and it gives us this wonderful illustration in Acts 4, verse 32 and following, of how unified the church was. You read that text when you get home, you're going to be like, wow, that's an amazing church. That is just an amazing experience. And so the church is on the mountaintop experience, and here the church is unified, and it talks about how unified they are. And then in the smack middle of that, of chapter 4, at the end of that paragraph, right in the smack middle of that, it talks about the being this community of believers together, selling their possessions and giving them money to help each other. Wasn't required, wasn't a command. They just, in the goodness and the love of their heart, filled with the Holy Spirit of God, were led to take care of each other. That's pretty impressive. By the way, that's what a church ought to do. A church ought to take care of each other. Amen? There shouldn't be anybody in our church that has to go outside and beg for bread. We should be able to help take care of our own, right? We should, anyway. That's our, that's our responsibility as a church. So what happens? We get focused down in the last few verses of chapter 4 on one particular guy. His name is Barnabas. We know him as the son of encouragement. He is also the one who we're going to read about later who is going to reach out to Paul and who's going to help Paul sort of get in to the fellowship of the believers in Jerusalem. He is a, he is a lover of people. And what we have, we have a highlight of him because apparently he had some significant property that he sold. And in selling that significant property, he brought probably a large sum of money and he just gave it to the apostles for the distribution among the church. Wasn't required. Didn't have to do it, but no doubt, led of the Holy Spirit of God, he sells it and brings the money and gives it. Now, the sharp contrast is you have Barnabas who gives, doesn't keep any of the money for himself, but then you have the sharp contrast in the word but in the beginning of verse 1 of chapter 5. And that contrast is there to help us to understand that in the context of everybody being unified and in the context of the church growing together and helping one another and supplying what's needed for one another, in that context, guess what? Sin rears its ugly head. In that context, but. The church is unified, but. Everybody's of one heart, but. Everybody is selling their possessions and giving to everyone who has need, but. You get the idea? There is this distinction that is made about Ananias and Sapphira. And the Bible tells us that this couple would take a piece of property and they would sell that property. And in doing so, they, they conspired together. And in conspiring together, we have what I'm calling the sin. So what is the sin? Well, the sin, if you look back at the text, is that they kept part of the proceeds for themselves. Now, here's the problem with that. Nobody told them to sell their land and give the money. Understand that up front. This is not what they had to do. This is what they chose to do. We're not talking about socialism in the church. Some people like to point to that and say, oh, there's socialism. That's not socialism. They voluntarily sold their possessions and brought it because of the love of God in their heart, because of the love of their brethren in their heart. And by the way, if you don't think that should be the case, all you got to do is go read 1 John chapter 4 and 5, and you'll find out if you don't love your brother who you have seen, you can't love God who you haven't seen. And one of the ways we love our brother who we have seen is, how can we who have the world's good see our brother in need and say to him, be warmed and be fed and not give him anything? How can we do that? We can't. It's impossible. It's foolish for us to do that. It's sinful for us to do that. And so here the church is doing that. They're taking care of one another. And so when you look at the situation there and you look at the, the lie that they told, that's where the sin is. It's in the lie that they told. And I want you to understand something. Read that verse again. Go back and look at verse 1 and 2. It says that he took some of the proceeds, verse 
uh, one, he took, he took the proceeds, or excuse me, verse two, and he kept a part of it back. That word to keep back is one word in the Greek, and here's what it means. It means to embezzle. I want you to think about what has happened. He's coming to the church, and he's giving his gift to the church. And Stephen, as he's giving his gift to the church, he's going, this is everything. We sold this piece of property for a million dollars, and we want this million dollars to be for Jesus. And we give the million dollars. In reality, they sold the property for a million and a half. They embezzled from God, let me just tell you. Amen? Why do they embezzle from God? Because they're saying they're giving everything when they're not really giving everything. Amen? They're keeping apart from themselves. That's embezzlement. You know what we would call that today? Fraud. Fraud. They stole money. That's what they did. They lied. This is for Jesus. No, they, they lied. So the sin is that they lied. But let me tell you what the other sin is that they did. It's called hypocrisy. Who knows? Maybe, maybe the church said, you know, we're just so elated, Barnabas, that you gave this gift. Thank you so much. Maybe the highlight was on Barnabas. And they thought, you know what? There's something to be gained here. Maybe we can become prominent in the church. Maybe we can, we can raise our status in the church if we just say we gave all this money. Maybe people think we're somebody because we gave money to the church. I know there's people like that today. They think because they give a lot of money to the church, they own the church. Let me tell you something. You don't own the church. Jesus owns the church. We already talked about that. Amen? I don't care how much money you give. And bless God if your money was gone tomorrow. I have no doubt. My God shall supply all of our needs in Christ Jesus. Amen? He'll replace it. He always does. He does that. People leave the church. Oh, preacher. Oh, they're leaving the church. We're going to lose. We're going to miss their money. No, we won't. God will, God will provide it. I have no doubt. And he always has. Every church I've been in, God always seems to provide the need. I don't know how he does it. He just does it. Amen? And so here they're, they're committing not only a lie, but listen, they're living in hypocrisy. They're trying to, trying to look spiritual in front of everybody when in, in reality, their heart is filled with sin. Hmm. You know what that means ultimately the sin was? You know where it all comes back to? One word. Ready for it? Pride. Pride. I'm going to tell you something. We don't deal with the pride in our lives. Listen, it'll cause us to be sinful human beings. It's where all sin comes from, isn't it? It stems out of our heart of pride, thinking we're all that in a box of chocolates. Amen? And so here they lied. But did you catch what Peter said? That they didn't lie to him. Look at the text. Go back to verse 3. Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit? The end of verse 4. You have not lied to men, but you lied to God. (laughs) Does God see everything you do? Did God know that they made a million and a half off of their property but only gave a million? Do you think God knew that? I'm going to tell you something. God knew it before they even were in the world. God knew it before he even fashioned this planet. Amen? God knew it before he even spoke anything into existence. God knew what was going to happen. God knew it. So they weren't fooling God, but they thought they were. So what is it saying here? Listen, listen very carefully now. Don't miss what I'm about to say. You can lie to the church, but if you're lying to the church, you're lying to God. Isn't that the correlation he just made? Somebody say yes. If I'm right, am I right? Am I close? And the other thing we can make the correlation to is 
Listen, if you're lying to God, you're lying against the Holy Spirit. Why? Because the Holy Spirit's God. Now here's the problem. The problem why it's so bad is because who in the midst of this church, who is the one that's infilling all these people? It's the Holy Spirit. Who's the one keeping the love and the unity and all that going? It's the Holy Spirit. Listen, it's not that, it's not, don't miss the point. It's not that Barnabas was some super spiritual Christian. Those guys were meatheads. That's not, that's not the situation here. All right? The situation is that Barnabas is walking in the Spirit, filled with the Spirit. They're being filled with pride and arrogance and hypocrisy and lying. And ultimately, knows what it said, Satan filled their heart. That sounds very familiar to me. Sounds like a guy named Judas, who the Bible says that Satan had put in his heart to portray Jesus. But can I just remind you too of Judas? Do you know about Judas? Judas was a thief. Did you know that Judas was stealing money from Jesus all along? Now it's not that Jesus was rich. Don't misunderstand the text. But anything that came in that was designated for ministry, he was pocketing in his own pocket. So do you know why Satan filled him to betray Jesus? Well, first of all, we know it was prophesied, so I can't get away from that. That's totally true. But you know why he's such a good instrument, humanly speaking? Because he was already setting himself up for failure. He was already setting himself up as an instrument that Satan can use because he was already a thief and a liar. Let me tell you something. It's the little things in life. Listen, it's the little things in life that you allow yourself to do that you know is sin. God has pointed it out in your life, but you're allowing it to go on. Let me tell you something. That's the thing. That's the crack in the door for Satan to come in. You hear me? That's the, and that's exactly what happened to Ananias and Fire. They had this little plot, this little conspiracy going on. We're going to sell this land. We're going to keep a little bit of this money. Guess what? Satan now is in the door. And what does he do? He, he helps to tempt you and push you over the edge. Now, ultimately, listen, don't misunderstand what everybody say. Ultimately, they're responsible for their own actions. So don't, don't, don't think, oh, Satan made me do it, preacher. Satan made me do it. I'm sorry, Satan didn't make you do it. Satan can't tie your hands up and force you to do it. Amen? He didn't make you do it. But he can tempt you to do it. But you're the one who did it. So you're still So Ananias and Survivor are responsible for the sin that's in their life. Can I just tell you, folks, listen, you know anything else I say? Deal with the sin that's in your life. Deal with the sin that's in your life. The church does not need sinful members. Deal with sin. And they don't need a sinful preacher either. So I've got to deal with my sin in my life. That's the sin. This confrontation. Notice the confrontation again. Notice verse 3 and 4. Again, Peter, he says, while it remained, was it not your own? Peter just is sort of, you know, he's just being full of the Holy Spirit, being prophetic, being, being the spiritual leader. He just says, listen, you guys are so foolish. Nobody told you to give it. While it was in your hands, you could have done it. Listen, you didn't have to give a dime to the church. You, you realize that, right? You remember a few weeks ago what I said? If it crosses the threshold, it belongs to who? Belongs to the Lord. That's right. It belongs to him. Amen. Somebody remembered. If it crossed. So listen, if you don't want it to cross the threshold, keep it in your pocket. Keep it, keep it in your checkbook. All right? That's when you and God. Listen, that's between you and God. I'm not going to. It's not my job to say, oh, you ought to, you know, you're not giving. I'm going to condemn you. I'm not, hey, listen, I'm not, that's when you and God, and I pray God will work on your heart. Because that's between you and him. But listen, and as a fire, they could have kept all the money, and it had been okay. There had never been a problem. You realize that, right? Here's the other thing. As this confrontation is going on, we see the role of Satan is tempting him. And by the way, I didn't say this verb, but First Peter 5, 8, just write it down. Peter, probably remembering, it says, you know, so be sober. Be vigilant 
Because your adversary, the devil, walks about like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. So Satan's looking for a way to get in. He's looking for a way to get into the church. He's looking for a way to get into your life. Satan is always looking, always looking for a way to get in. But I want you to see something in this text, because not only... I don't want to blame Satan for all of it because notice in the text again, while it remained, was it not your own after it was sold? Was it not in your own control? Why have you conceived this thing in your heart? See, that's where sin begins. It's the heart. See, here's where people mess up. People think, well, I can be, I can do, be clean or I can quit eating or I can, you know, get a hold of alcohol and get a beat alcohol. I can do this. I can do that. And they think that they could do that by their own strength, their own power. But the problem is we got issues of the heart. And until we fix the heart, we have no power to do anything else. Why? Because Jesus has to fix the heart. So what happens is Jesus fixes the heart. And what are we seeing when Jesus fixes hearts? We've seen people get clean and sober. We see daddies going back home to their families. We see marriages restored. We see children restored to their parents. Isn't it amazing what happens when Jesus gets inside and does something in the heart? Here's what's happened to Ananias and Sapphira. Rather than the spirit being the control center of the heart, now it's their pride and their hypocrisy and their lying. And so now they're in sin. So you conceive it in the heart, then it becomes an action. So the battle's in the heart. What's your heart like this morning? Is your heart his? You want it to be his. You want the power of the spirit to be yours. But it cannot be if your heart is not right. Now, the sad situation is, at this point in juncture in the confrontation, they could have repented. Think about it. At this point, when Peter confronts Ananias, later when he confronts Sapphira, he says, why? There's no explanation. There's no repentance. There's no remorse. We see none in the text, David. So what happens? God makes a swift judgment and he takes him out. And that's the next step I want to talk about is the consequences. And, and in talking about the consequences, can I just be honest with you that there's, a, there's probably a lot of questions get raised from this text. But the first thing we really know is if you look at the text, it's very clear in chapter 5, verse 5, notice verse 5, that Ananias died. And Ananias, hearing these words, fell down and breathed his last. That means he's dead. Verse 10, and immediately she fell down. And Sapphira fell down at his feet, breathed her last. She's dead. It's very obvious to me they died. And it's very obvious to me from the response of the people that are there that it's God who killed them. Right? You see that in the text. God's punishment for them was physical death. So the question becomes, first of all, are they believers? Well, if I believe the Bible, I believe they were. First of all, they're numbered among this community in the text. It's just very obvious that it's, as it flows that they're a part of this church, this local church. So no doubt that they seem to be believers. The, the second thing I would say is, is that God does not discipline those who are not his, but he disciplines those whom he loves. Seems like they were disciplined. The other thing I would say is if you look at the text, why have you lied against the Holy Spirit? If Peter thought they were lost, why talk about lying against the Spirit? It'd mean nothing to them. The fourth thing I would say to you is, what do you think this is recorded for? Why do you think this situation happened? 
And I'm going to tell you why it happened. Because Jesus says sin is very, very much to be dealt with in the church. Sin is serious business, folks. So Ananias and Sapphira, they were believers who faced judgment. Now, do I understand all that? I can't tell you that I do. Can I tell you that when John talks about a sin unto death, I don't understand all of that. I'm not smart enough. Get online and Google it. Maybe somebody smarter than me can tell you. But I'm just here to say, it's a mystery to us. And I think rather than asking the question, why did God kill them? I think we ought to answer, ask this question. Why hasn't it that God hadn't killed me? Why hasn't it that God hadn't killed you? Have you ever thought about that? Have you ever read that, read that text and said, you know, God, they just lied. I've done some worse things. At least on par, I've lied. I mean, I'm just being honest with you this morning. Can, can you say you're there? I mean, can you say as a believer you're perfect? Can you say there's never a time when you don't sin in your life? I don't think you can. Now, I think we would all say we probably have lied somewhere along, even since we've known Jesus. But here, here I agree with R.C. Sproul. R.C. Sproul says, that God hasn't killed many of us because God is a patient father. And his patience and long-suffering toward us is to lead to repentance. But that's not what I see in the church this day. What I see in the church today is that God's patience and long-suffering has led to more sin. Now what people have decided is, well, God hasn't done anything. You, know, you keep telling me there's consequence for my sin, but I sin and nothing happens. Oh, you, you think God doesn't know what you're doing? You think God doesn't uh, have a record of what you're doing? There's a day, my friend, listen, there's a day where the Bible says it's called the judgment seat of Christ. As a Christian, you will stand before God and you will give an accounting of what you've done in the body, both what? Good and bad. Your salvation, listen, I have no doubt Ananias and Sapphira are in heaven. No doubt. Believers in Jesus, they're in heaven. But they were punished. And we are going to be punished if we don't deal with our sin. And we should never impose upon the patience and the long-suffering and the love of God. But it ought to drive us to repentance. When the Spirit of God prompts us that we've done wrong, we ought to immediately confess that sin. We ought to immediately tell God we're sorry and forgive us of our sin. You know what happened here? You know what invoked this situation invoked upon the people in the church. You read it twice. Go to Acts five or go to go to five verse five again. Notice the second part of that verse. So great fear came upon all those who heard these things. And, and then verse eleven. So great fear came upon all the church and upon all those who heard these things. What happened? I'm going to tell you what it invoked: awe and respect and reverential fear for God. Do you think that the people in the church thought, well, you know what? I'm just going to get away with my sin. I don't think they thought that anymore. I, I wouldn't be surprised. It's not recorded for us, but I would not be surprised if they didn't have a serious altar call. And there were some people laying some sin down in the church. Because again, I'm telling you, <laughs> they lied. I've seen a lot worse than that in church. And people don't seem to care. All right, well, let me finish up. What's the conclusion of the matter? Let me just give you three things and I'll be done. Three 
implications or applications, however you want to take them. Number one, if sin is this serious, then I need to repent. I need to have a repentant attitude. If sin is this serious, I want to repent. If God can take me out, then I, I certainly want to be taking sin as serious in my life. The second thing that I want to make sure that I get drive home, I've already said it a million times, but I'll say it again, is don't take God's patience for granted. Don't trample on the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. You know, we always argue and debate Hebrews 6. I, I hate when people do that, but they want to, you know, can a, can a Christian lose their salvation? The answer is no. Consistently through the Bible, once you're saved, you belong to him. You're eternally secure. But do you realize that the seriousness of sin, you know, in Hebrews, you go back to the seriousness in Hebrews, it talks about willful sin. And we, when we are in willful sin, when we're in known sin in our life and we are willfully staying there, do you realize there is a stricter judgment, a stricter punishment for that? Number three, the church. Listen, if Jesus takes sin seriously, the church should take sin seriously. And then listen, unpopular, but I'm going to say it. The church should deal with known sin in the church. I'm just going to put it out there. The church should deal with known sin in the church. If we have known sin in the church, we ought to deal with it. He's saying, oh, Lord, we're just opening Pandora's box. I'm not opening Pandora's box. I'm opening the scriptures. I'm opening the truth of the word of God. And the reality is there's a difference between, listen, there's a difference between, you know, I have a private sin that I've committed than an open sin that everybody knows about. If you're a deacon in the church, and you're leaving the sportsman's lounge every Saturday night in a drunken stupor. Why should I let you stay a deacon in our church? You with me? If, 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 if I did that, nobody has a problem firing the preacher. If I got accused of a Me Too situation, nobody would have a problem sitting me down and putting me in at least, at least put me off to the side for a little bit to investigate it. And if there's any validity to it, it would fire me in a heartbeat. Yet we have people in the church do the same stuff and they keep coming week after week after week after week. We never say a word to them. I'm going to tell you folks, Jesus purifies his church. And guess what? How does he do that today? It's called church discipline. You want to know more about that? That's next week's sermon. Come and hear about church discipline. But let me conclude with what Peter says and why we're going this direction. Listen to what Peter says. For the time has come for judgment to begin at the house of God. He says, for if it begins with us first, what will be the end of those who do not obey the gospel of God? 1 Peter 4, verse 17. I'll talk more next week on how church discipline looks like and what it's all about. Let's pray together. Thank you for listening today. And remember, you can find more information about Pastor Mike and the church at our website, www.fbclp.life.